Mike's. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Brought to you by OfficerPrivacy.com, the company's officers trust with their online privacy. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, a show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired crime stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Checkerly. And we have another stellar show because we have... A stellar guest. Uh, this is uh, retired Michael Sugru. Uh, he was not only a, a retired sergeant, but he was a captain in the Air Force. So again, I'm surrounded by a bunch of Air Force people. Me, the Army yes. brat. <laughs> yes. Go Air Force. Yeah, his uh, story is riveting, and I can't wait to get into it with him in terms of his career. Um, it has um, a shooting involvement. It has a, a trial. It has um, people letting him down. It has all the earmarkings of PTSI or PTSD, as some people like to refer to it, is a riveting story. Uh, there's, I guarantee you there's not a cop out there who isn't on social media that doesn't know who Michael is. And now you will hear him on Badge Boys. We're going to take both the, uh, the main segment, guest segment, as well as our cop talk and continue the story with Michael. And then the last segment, we're going to have, of course, our <laughs> continuation of Looney Laws, heroic headlines, and Jason's always inspirational message. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you can be entertained after this message from our sponsor. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a special deal for listeners of this podcast. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top three sites that are showing your home address, phone number, and more. Sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. You can also follow the link on our show notes. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're in for a real treat to talk to uh, retired uh, police sergeant Michael Suguru. Uh, Jason, I really can't wait for you to be part of this because he's like you. He's this keynote speaker around the world. Uh, I won't get into it immediately because I want to talk to you, Jason, about OfficerPrivacy.com, um, which is our sponsor. But it's more than that. It's truly something that we both feel so importantly about. And then last week, Robin brought up that she joined yeah, the club as well. Yeah, all three of us feel important about yeah, it's so important. And me and Jason will always talk about the aspect when you go to officerprivacy.com forward slash BB or forward slash badge boys, you get a discount, you get a free month, you get a gift, you get all these things. But more importantly, you get that, that 
gosh, that 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 that, that ease that that knowing that you're sense safe. Sense of security. Uh, tr- security, truly, big truly time. a sense of security. And I can't help but think about you know with Michael what he does. He travels all around the world, lecturing and, and giving these presentations, known world round. You are the same way, Jason. And for you to be out there going from place to place, it's got to give you a sense of, of you know, security, knowing that you're, someone's not going to be able to dox you um, as easily without having officerprivacy.com. Yeah, and, you know, a couple episodes ago when we had uh, oh. Officer Dejus' wife on and uh, their story, how instantly it can happen and how it can ruin your life and put you in, in fear for your safety. And more importantly, your family, because uh, everybody out there, uh, officers, of course, but even uh, Robin and people who aren't police officers, what they care about is not just themselves at home. They care about who's in the home with them. And officerprivacy.com, that's what I love about it, provides an extra layer, uh, well, a pretty thick layer uh, to uh, a peace of mind. And, and I just, I love them. I love Pete, uh, you know, and they're doing a great job. Yeah, and when you think about today's times when there's this woke community out there this council culture this this insanity and their first item on their playbook to mess with cops or mess with people that promote cops and support cops and are good people is to dox and uh, harass and lebronize them you know so yeah it's a great <laughs> yeah that's my new <laughs> adjective lebronize um so yeah again uh, officerprivacy.com forward slash bb uh, now I want to get right into my interview, our interview with uh, Michael Suguru. Uh, he began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as security forces in 1998. As a security force officer, Michael specialized in law enforcement, global force protection, anti-terrorism, <laughs> nuclear security, uh, foreign airfield assessments, and air-based ground defense. This guy did it all. Uh, he served all over the United States and Europe, the Middle East, and South America. Uh, he was honorably separated from the Air Force as a captain. I think he outranks you, Jason. I'm just putting it out there. He, uh, he outranks me, but uh, I served from 91 to 95 in the same capacity. And so I'm going to just claim seniority as far as I'm <laughs> uh, Immediately after his uh, Air Force, he was uh, hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, where he served in a variety of assignments, including patrol officer, uh, driver and training instructor, uh, field training officer, uh, detective, undercover, narcotics. Uh, and then he ended up going into public information officer and then as a patrol sergeant. Uh, Michael was awarded the Walnut Creek PD Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting in 2012. This guy has seen it all. And since retiring, he's now still helping police, but in such an important component that is in dire need with uh, the suicide rates and PTSI, the post-traumatic stress injury. Uh, so without further ado, I want to introduce to you retired Patrol Sergeant Michael Zagru. Michael, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I've had the benefit of hearing your story. Uh, I've seen it on a couple of YouTube different presentations. Uh, and I hate to, please forgive me when I say it's riveting, it's compelling, but it really is. It's uh, having been in three shootings, having shot at, uh, it, it puts me right back there. Um, but it's the trial, it's the 
case afterwards, the, the harassment you received, if you will, um, that just also hits home, having felt that, if you will, as a uh, situation that unfortunately many of us too, too often feel in police work when we put ourselves out there, um, you know, the um, second-handers come back and, you know, want to try to uh, be a backseat driver to what they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, why you wanted to be a police officer? Because it sounds like you want to be a police officer even before you were a police officer when you are in the Air Force. Can you talk about that, that desire, why you put your name on that dotted line, if you will? Absolutely. Um, you know, it comes down to really one single reason, and that's because of my stepfather. His name was Michael Gormley, and he was a, eventually a police lieutenant here in the Bay Area in Richmond, California, which is one of the most dangerous cities. And prior to that, he worked at Sausalito PD. And I actually, um, because I so looked up to him and he was my ultimate hero, I became a police volunteer, believe it or not, at the age of eight years old. <laughs> and I, I can literally remember, you know, being in the police department and filing paperwork and washing patrol cars. And the ultimate thing was every year we had a big parade in the city of Sausalito. And I used to ride in the parade with McGruff. And, you know, I had the itch all the way back then. And later on in my teen years, I actually became a police explorer for the Richmond Police Department. And I remember that was the first actual police uniform I got to wear. I remember just looking at that badge with amazement. And it was always my dream. And, you know, the fact was I eventually did go into the Air Force into military police, but my goal was to always go into either the FBI or civilian law enforcement after that. And so, you know, it really comes down to my father. He was my hero. He was the ultimate cop's cop. And, you know, to this day, I just truly look up to him and thank him for all he did for me as a father and just as a, a person to look up to. That's a beautiful story. So many times the stories are closer to like mine where I needed a job. You know, uh, I love I love community. I love that sense. But you know, a single father, I needed a job. Uh, I love hearing the stories of of like yours, Michael. Where you know, age eight, you're already helping out. Uh, you know, washing cop cars and and wanting to be part of that family. Uh, so, what did it feel like to kind of you know achieve that dream uh, when you came onto the department there? I remember the day like it was yesterday, and, you know, the biggest part about that day was I remember my father, he was a sergeant at the time for Richmond PD, and he was in full uniform, I was in uniform, and when he pinned that badge on me, and just the look in his eyes that he had, I mean, it was uh, just a look of pride and love, like, I can't even explain it, but I just felt it directly in my heart, and I finally felt like I had made it, like I had achieved my dream. And I look back now and I was so positive and so motivated. And to me, it was sky was the limit. I mean, there was things I wanted to do, but I planned on making it a 30 year plus career. And, you know, someday I wanted to be chief. That was my dream. That was my goal. And just that day, I will never, never forget. And I have a photo of it that somebody else took and I have it in a frame in my room and I look at it every single day. I love that. I love that. Uh, cops kind of many times talk about the first time they go solo, uh, but it's neat hearing the, the, that first day 
Uh, talk about that first day solo, though. Talk about that, you know, being on your own, um, shagging calls, and, and that love of actually doing the job. You know, I remember I was so ready to be cut loose on my own. I know I eventually <laughs> became an FBO, and a lot of people are scared and they're worried. And, man, I just wanted that training officer out of my car. And I was, <laughs> I was tired of shagging the cold, you know, frauds and autobergs. And my passion since day one was to hunt. I mean, that's what I was. I was a hunter. I was proactive. I was averaging probably, I mean, 30 proactive stops a day you know, two arrests per day, 12 to 14 sites per day. I called it back then touching lives in, in a different way, but that's how I looked at it. I looked <laughs> at it. My job was to outsmart the bad guys and put them in jail, and that was my sole focus. You know, it's funny because when you say touching lives, you know, now in today's woke era, but I, I got the uh, <laughs> the humor in that. You know, you were, you were a meat eater, my friend. You're who we love to have on those proactive groups, uh, you know, doing OV, you know, truly having an effect. I, I, a little bit different in the sense that I was a, a I love shagging radio calls and, and love going and talking to people and so forth. But there are some people out there that could just, we call them shit magnets. They just got into so many things things and so many so it makes sense that you found yourself down the road into undercover and narcs and tell us a little bit about that so that you know i gotta tell you the story i was a brand new officer and i was in the report writing area in my police department and this guy walks into the pd and he looked like a total dirtbag i was like <laughs> who the hell let this scumbag inside the department and it turns out it was one of our guys that i didn't know and he was on this regional state drug task force and the moment I saw him, I was like, that is badass. That is what I want to do. And, you know, that was my goal was to find drug users, find drug dealers, take guns off the street, start turning informants. And I made that my number one goal. That was my goal was to make that task force. And I remember when it opened up, it's just the stars aligned. And... You know, I had done all the work ahead of time, more than anybody else, and so I was literally a shoe-in. And I remember reporting on the first day, it was an isolated, like, business office in another city. I didn't know these other guys. I walk in, and it was like, it was like out of the shield. It was like out of this TV show. And I was like, <laughs> holy crap, like, I actually get paid to do this. <laughs> and... You know, I remember just thinking, like, all right, I'm going to pierce both ears. I'm going to grow this nasty goatee, shave my head, you know, buy a bunch of retro Air Jordans and LRG T-shirts. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it was, oh, I look back now, and it was, without a doubt, my dream. It was my number one assignment. And, you know, it took a while to get going. It took a while to build up my credibility within this unit because I was known in my agency, but I wasn't known in this, in this unit. So it was like starting all over. But once I got going and I found my groove, it was awesome. I mean, just producing cases, working with my partners, working with the feds, going up on wiretaps, you know, doing surveillance in other counties, going down to the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe that I was actually doing this job. And I never wanted it to end. I mean, my plan was to do that assignment as long as I possibly could. 
You know, and we, we look back at those, those, those details that we just love, that squad, the, the camaraderie, the, the rewarding nature, and let's be honest, the fun you know, of catching bad guys and, and making a real difference. Uh, but with a lot of us, and again, you were a captain in the Air Force, so you understood leadership, you understood training and helping and, and fostering and facilitating. Uh, at some point, that happened in your police career where you end up taking on the role as a sergeant uh, after you were a, uh, a training officer. So you clearly had that in you as well. Am I right? That's correct. But, you know, how that came about wasn't really planned. Unfortunately, my, and this is going to go into a whole other area, but my commander of the statewide drug task force, it turns out that he was actually stealing our evidence and selling it on the side. Oh, my God. And what happened was, is California Department of Justice brought in a team from Southern California who did a wiretap and were surveilling us. And thank God they did that because it turns out that nobody else on the task force was involved with this, and we didn't know about it. But because of him, he, he basically caused the entire county task force to be shut down. And he decimated the California DOJ B&E, which was the state version of DEA. And now that's not even no longer. There is no... California DOJ B&E. And so, you know, becoming a sergeant was much further down the road. It wasn't something I wanted to do right away. But again, the opportunity came up and I, I didn't want to pass it up. And so I applied, I put in and, you know, good or bad, I got selected. And, and that's, that's where I was. You know, before we get into your, your nice patrol sergeant and talk about the uh, shooting, uh, I just want to say this is your story regarding that piece of shit. Oh, excuse my language um, is exactly why we hate. There's nobody that hates a bad cop more than a cop. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely, and you're spot on. And I, you know, my blood pressure is going right now thinking about <laughs> how angry I am because he is a piece of shit, and he ruined so many lives. And that task force was so highly looked upon by the entire county, by all the chiefs, by all the agencies. And after that happened, there was nothing but scrutiny and people looking at me and questioning me and wondering if I was involved. And that asshole is now in federal prison. He got 14 years. And as you know, you've got to do 85% of your time in federal prison. And he should have got longer because he's an absolute disgrace. Uh, yeah, no, I, I could not agree stronger with your words. And thankfully, in my 30 years of, of career, I, I didn't have that story. But I've heard other stories like yours, and just it, it makes my blood boil. I can't even imagine folks like you, you know, wearing that badge and, and, and the tarnish they put on that. And again, you know, I don't want to go whole into the George Floyd thing where I won't even, you know, mention that officer's name, but when they tarnish the badge, it, it does more than just makes us look bad to the community, which it clearly does, but it has to have a, a, a ripple effect within the unit itself. I can't imagine what you went through during that time period. Well, you know, that's the first time I felt like a criminal. I remember the team came in from Southern California, and I was interrogated by these DOJ agents. And, it, you know, it was the first time, like, I felt like I was on the other side. Like, I was being looked at. I was being accused. And that feeling is indescribable unless you've been there. You know, here we are literally putting our lives on the line every single day, multiple times a day, for complete strangers, and now because of this asshole, 
my entire life, my entire career is now under the microscope. And, you know, this, I went from being the expert testifying in multiple court cases, not only for my cases, but for several other officers in my agency, to having to explain every time I went to court, hey, I got to give you a heads up, I was part of this task force, you know, but I wasn't involved. It's like, I felt like I had this monkey on my back for years, and and I went from this solid, pristine, untouchable reputation to being associated with this shitbag. And, you know, as you mentioned, the facts are, is 99.9% of officers are good, and they're doing the job for the right reason. But you don't hear about that in the media. You don't hear about that in the news. All you hear about is that one shitbag. And now everybody thinks all cops are dirty. And I can't describe to you how angry that makes me feel because so many of my brothers and sisters are out there every single day literally putting themselves on the line for complete strangers, knowing they may not come home to their family. Who else does this? Michael, this is Jason. I got to tell you, I just love hearing the passion in your voice right now because Darren and I talk about this all the time. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And it's just refreshing to have somebody stand up and say it the way it should be said. And uh, I I know it just comes from your heart naturally, but I absolutely love listening to your voice right now. And I want to thank you for that and for your service. I would give anything to stand in front of you and give you a salute that you so richly deserve. Um, But now we're looking forward to getting into the heart of this story. So Darren, take us there. Yeah. So now you're a uh, patrol sergeant and uh, life is, I can only share a little bit of how I felt. It was so re it just completely renewed me in terms of going from detectives and, and now I'm back with a young team and we're doing good police work. Was that kind of like you, what you felt as a patrol sergeant? And then t- t- take us, if you will, to that, that, that moment in time that things changed drastically. Well, let me just let you know where my life was at that point. I was happily married. I had a beautiful two-year-old daughter. I literally bought my dream house that I'd wanted to get for my entire life in the perfect neighborhood I had just been promoted, I mean, literally quicker and faster than anybody in my agency. And I'd gone through a short training program with other sergeants, kind of like an informal FTO program, and I'd been cut loose. And I was literally on my second solo week of being a sergeant. And I just remember, like, how good it felt to be running that lineup and to have these young, motivated officers on my team because we're working graveyard, as you know, the graveyard team is the junior sergeants and it's the junior motivated officers. And I just remember like thinking, man, I, I made it. Like I, I, I found it and like, I'm it, I'm in charge. Like when everybody goes home, it's the graveyard team and nobody else is on duty. I'm literally the acting chief of police. And so I want to take you to the day after Christmas, 2012. And again, this is my second solo week as a patrol sergeant. It was a graveyard shift. Our shift started at 9.30 p.m. And I remember it was my team, and the lieutenant was there from the swing shift, but he was going to be going home in a few hours. And I remember the mood was great. Everybody was in a good mood because, you know, it was right after Christmas. It was literally our Friday, so we were going to be off for like three or four days. 
And all we had to do was get through this graveyard shift. And, you know, typically on the holidays, it's like the slowest shift. It's quiet. There's not much going on. Everybody's just kind of hanging out and enjoying it. And it's also minimum staffing. So my team that night had the minimum number of officers. I started out, and I was that proactive sergeant. I got in trouble a couple times, but, you know, I did a few stops because I just couldn't get that out of my system. <laughs> and there, there really wasn't any uh, calls for service. And about 1, one thirty in the morning, the swing shift team went home, the lieutenant went home. So now it's just myself and four officers on duty. And I remember it was like 2.30 in the morning, and I went and grabbed some grub with one of my officers and just had a great time talking with him. And then after that, I went to this dark parking lot of a Taco Bell, put my car in park, and I'm sitting there starting to review reports. Because literally, I want to get this all done and get off on time. And up to this point... I think there maybe been one or two calls the entire night. I mean, this was one of the quietest shifts I'd ever worked in my career. And all of a sudden, I hear these alert tones come out on the radio. And it immediately caught my attention because they don't come out very often. They come out for the most serious, in-progress, heinous calls. And so I immediately stopped and started listening. And what I immediately noticed was the female dispatcher, her voice was extremely panicked. And I'd never heard her voice like this before. And she immediately put out that there was a woman inside a condo and there was a subject armed with a knife. And she gave the address on a Creekside Drive, which is a, a street all with condos and high-rise apartments. And I know the area, but I don't know the specific addresses and buildings. And so I immediately put my car in drive, put the lights and siren on, and I'm driving as fast as I can. And I can hear all my other officers starting to go to the call as well. And already I've got this just tunnel vision, my adrenaline's pumping, and I'm halfway there, and literally the dispatcher says now the male and the female are barricaded inside the bedroom. And I was confused. I wasn't sure if the boyfriend was the one with the knife or if there was a third party with the knife, so I asked for clarification. And the dispatcher said, no, there's a third subject with the knife. At this point I'm really starting to go, and I'm just driving as fast as I can. And it feels like eternity, but I literally got there in a couple minutes and I'm looking for the address it's dark it's not very well lit and I find the complex but again I don't know where the specific unit is I park my car and immediately as I start to get out of my car the dispatcher starts screaming she's like units units there's a struggle there's a struggle and the line went dead and as I'm getting out of my car thank god my partner rolls up right behind me and in the distance we can hear blood-curling screams. I can hear a female, and it sounds like somebody's being killed or being stabbed. To this day, one of the worst sounds I've ever heard. And we know there's more units coming, but the female officer and I, we start immediately running towards the sounds of the screams. And we're running, and we're, we're looking, and we're looking, and we eventually run into the staircase, and we have to crawl under the staircase into this open courtyard. And we can still hear the screams. And as we get just about to the unit, it goes dead silent. It goes from these blood-curling, gut-wrenching screams to just absolute, complete silence. In complete stillness, I'm looking around. I don't see a single person. I see this unit, and there's a door. It's a two-story condo with adjoined units on both sides. To the left of the door, my partner notices there's this huge louvered window that's completely shattered inside the condo. We have our guns out. We're announcing ourselves and nothing. 
we know there's more officers coming, but we got to get inside that condo. So she goes in first. I'm right behind her. We clear the downstairs, and I don't see anything. There's nobody found, no obvious signs of a struggle other than that window that was smashed in. And we make our way to the bottom of the stairwell. And we know we got to get upstairs. We know that this couple and this female is somewhere upstairs. And so we're shoulder to shoulder in this tight, cramped space. Our guns are out, and we're yelling, we're announcing. And at first, we don't see anything. We can see there's a slight opening at the top of the stairwell. Moments later, this subject partially comes out. It's this male. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open. I mean, the best way to describe it, he looks like a zombie. And he's staring straight through us as if we're not there. We're yelling, show us your hands, show us your hands. And he has no visible reaction whatsoever. No eye movement, no facial expressions, no body movement. He's just staring straight through us. Thank God two more officers come in, a male officer and a female officer. And I immediately direct one of them to get on the taser. And the male officer gets the taser and stands right behind the female partner and I. The male eventually comes out a little bit further, and my partner yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And I look at his right hand, and clenched in his right hand, he has a large butcher knife. It's a blue ceramic butcher knife. And again, we're yelling at him, drop the knife, drop the knife. And there is no reaction whatsoever. Moments later, he raises his hand up in a stabbing position and starts coming towards us. And we fire our weapons. Now he's at the bottom of the stairs, and this is all happening just, I mean, literally milliseconds. And I can't see if he's been hit. I don't see any injuries. I don't see any blood. The two female officers retreat to the family room. The male officer that was behind us tried to use his taser, but it was ineffective. It missed. And now the male is at the bottom of the stairs, and he's still fully clenching this butcher knife that's pointed at us. And we're, we, our guns are at him. We're saying, drop the knife, drop the knife. And again, he starts to come up with a knife, and we shoot. And there's no nice way to say it. I mean, he's literally feet from us. He's a couple feet from us. And he, his wounds were devastating. His eye was gone. I mean, it was horrible. He, he was obviously gone. I immediately order the female officers upstairs to check on the couple, and it turns out the subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door with the butcher knife, and the door is literally coming off the hinges. The male and female boyfriend and girlfriend were literally physically barricading the door with their bodies, trying to prevent him from coming in. And thank God we got there and we did, because I know if we hadn't, they would be dead. They wouldn't be here today. But that single incident forever changed my life as I knew it. You know, when you tell that story with such passion, such conviction, and I know I'm speaking for Jason, but I want to hear Jason's take on it as well. Um, you know, you did everything right. You know, you did. You had a backup. You had your, your, your you know, made sure there was no crossfire. You had a, a secondary with less lethal, but as a backup mechanism, you had, you know, the lethal there. If you needed it, he comes down. He has a, not a knife, a butcher knife. You did everything right. You had to think that in your head when this played out. And Jason, your take on that, hearing that story, what's your take on that? Great police work. It's phenomenal police work, and it's an incredible story. And I, you know, everybody's going to have a few calls like that. But what this really 
brings up in me and inspires me to ask Michael, you know, Michael, I still teach at our academy. I teach victimology and I see these young recruits and, you know, the, the days of the 60s and the 70s are like your dad, a cop's cop, you know, where you just had to do your job and get over it. I always tell these young recruits, you know, I pray that you'll revert back to your training just the way you did in that situation. I pray that you're the one that goes home every night. But no matter what you learn in this academy, the first time or the defining time that you save a life, that you take a life, that you are in a situation where you might not be the one going home that night, nobody can ever prepare you for how you as an individual, we're, you know, we are not made on a cookie sheet. We're not robots. We all, we're all going to feel a little bit, di bit different. So nobody can prepare you for how you as an individual are going to feel. And I would love to hear you expand a little bit on, I can hear the passion in you. I know, you know, you served our country. You're an officer. Then you become a police officer. You were gung-ho out there doing the job, not just chasing radio, but finding your own stuff to do. And you still had a call that changed your life forever. So I would love to hear the raw, vulnerable side of that from somebody like you who can actually speak to it. You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, when I was undercover, I literally did hundreds and hundreds of high-risk entries. And I'd pulled out my gun numerous times, almost shot somebody once before. I tased multiple people. But this incident was the first time where I lost that feeling of invincibility. I lost that feeling that I was this untouchable superhero because I almost died. I almost saw my partners die. And all I could think about was my baby girl, my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, what's going to happen when I'm not there for her? Who's going to fill my shoes? Who's going to be her father? Who's going to raise her and love her? And this incident touched me to the core. This incident showed me that I wasn't invincible and that I could die. But there's this other part about this entire incident which I haven't talked about. Yes. And the fact is that this person that broke to this condo, he wasn't some serial killer, hardcore gangbanger, you know, some person with extensive violent criminal history. It turns out this guy was one of the roommates, and something happened that night. To this day, we don't know what happened. He had no history of mental illness. He had some drug use, but literally he had no police contacts. Everyone that knew him talked about what a nice young man this guy was. And that's, that's the real issue is that I took someone's life, and I have to live with that forever. You know, like you mentioned, I know for a fact I saved lives. I know for a fact I had no other choice. I had no other options. But that doesn't negate or take away from the fact that I took a human life. I took someone's son away. I took someone's brother away. And I have to live with that. And we all wanted answers as to why this happened. And so I was sued federally immediately. And I went through a long lawsuit for four years, eventually was on federal trial, and went through a full trial in San Francisco. 
Why? Because the family wanted answers. I wanted answers. And even after all of that, to this day, right now here, I don't have the answer. I don't have the explanation. And I'm a Christian. I was raised Catholic. And I know that's part of the job. I know being in the military and law enforcement, we're expected to do it. And I would do it again if I had to, no question about it. No question about it. Because if it's my life or theirs, it's going to be theirs. I'm going home to my family. But I still have to live with that. I still have to work on that. And to this day, all I want is for the family members of that man to know the effect that this had on me as a person and it had on my life. Because I didn't want to do that. I had to do it, and I was forced to do it. And it changed me forever. You know, I want to talk about that change. Uh, But before I go into that and ask you how PTSI affected your your remaining part of your career, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about qualified immunity in terms of what you see and hear. And and you have a personal relationship now in terms of this wrongful death suit that was filed and and the horrible nature of going after a police officer who did his job and wish he hadn't had to he was forced upon talk a little bit about that and then if you would the effect that this had in terms of your remaining part of your career so we were sued immediately and that started a whole lengthy four years of depositions and legal processes and i can remember being a very small room with the father of the man i killed sitting less than four feet across the table from me, staring at me for eight hours a day as I gave my deposition and as my partners gave their depositions. And, you know, the thing is about qualified immunity, I have to be honest with you, until this incident happened, I didn't know much about qualified immunity because it was never an issue. It was never a factor for me. You know, when this happened, it became a reality for me. And after several years of depositions, The federal judge looked at our case, and he actually gave us qualified immunity on the first volley of shots. So the first volley of shots was myself and the two female officers. It turns out that the two female officers didn't hit him at all. I hit him a few times. And on the second round of shots, we didn't get qualified immunity. The judge basically said that, you know what, there's enough here that this should still go through federal civil trial and so what happened was they actually split the four of us even though we were involved together in this horrific incident and the two female officers became witnesses not defendants only myself and the other male officer became actual defendants so now not only are they tearing us apart as a team but literally it comes down to myself and my partner and we're now in the federal courtroom. We've got this jury just staring at us and going through two weeks of absolute hell with these crazy expert witnesses, you know, guns for hire that they brought in, saying literally on the record that we are cold-blooded murderers, that we planted evidence, that we made this whole story up. And this is in San Francisco, of all places, one of the most leftist, liberal places you can imagine. Oh, by the way, The trial happened in September of 16, and now at that time, there was literally four or five very controversial police shootings across the U.S., and at this point, there was already a very big 
anti-law enforcement movement and actual hate for police officers. And I can remember seeing the jury being selected and people, I remember the other plaintiff's attorney asking, hey, who doesn't think that officers should actually even carry guns? And I can remember two-thirds of the prospective jurors actually raised their hands and said that officers should not have guns whatsoever. I mean, could you imagine? No. Insane. And again, you know, when you talk about 2016, Trayvon Martin, you're talking about the BOM during their infancy, if you will, um, worst possible time. And uh, I have to ask, I, I wish I didn't have to ask because it doesn't matter, but what nationality was the, uh, the, young, the young man who lost his life based on his actions, quite frankly? He was Caucasian. Gotcha. It would, I hate to say it because it doesn't matter, but, and yet in this world today, sadly, it does. It comes up. Um, what happened to you in terms of that uh, lawsuit and then about your career, and I'm going to just say it, you know, your post-traumatic stress based on, God, the horrible nature of taking a life, which I sadly had to do as well, my friend. Uh, and so I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the last thing you think you're going to do when you wake up that morning, and it's the last thing you want to do. And I shed a tear when I heard he died, this bank robber. But tell me about the moment that, this finally was put behind you in terms of the the horrific nature of this lawsuit, which is uh, in and of itself could cause PTSD. So, you know, PTSD affected me immediately. I remember the day I went home from my shooting and my wife at the time and my young daughter greeted me at the door. And I remember I just wanted to go up to my room with my blackout shades and literally sleep this away, hoping it was some nightmare that didn't really happen. And I started isolating. I didn't talk to anybody about what happened because I was under investigation from the DA. There was an eye investigation. I was sued. There was literally nobody I trusted that I could talk to. I didn't want to talk to my spouse. I totally started drinking more, drinking myself to sleep at night, hoping this nightmare would just go away. I eventually lost my marriage. I started just becoming a total asshole and unapproachable at work. I remember purposely putting myself in dangerous situations on duty, hoping I died in the line of duty, hoping I was killed so I could be remembered and not forgotten about. And, you know, my whole thing was this trial for four years. I put everything on that saying, you know what, once this trial is over, then everything is going to go back to normal. My life's going to be good again. I'm going to forget about this. And that trial made it 10 times worse because after sitting there for two weeks with the family members of the person I killed, and oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, the person I killed had an identical twin brother who was an Air Force veteran who was literally sitting feet from me in the courtroom. And so this face that I couldn't get out of my nightmares every single day was now literally feet behind me for weeks. Insane. I mean, could you imagine no, that? No, I can't. Wow. It's, it's absolutely indescribable. I mean, literally this ongoing nightmare I can't get rid of is now reality literally over my shoulder, feet behind me. And so when I woke up from that trial, and we won, we prevailed, thank God. Even Judge Breyer, the brother of the Supreme Court Justice, said, had it not been for our actions, more lives would have been lost that night. But after that trial ended, all I wanted to do is to talk 
to the father to let him know, like I said, how much this affected me. And I asked my attorneys to approach his attorneys to see if I could talk to him. And I understand why he didn't want to. But to this day, if I ever get the chance to talk to him, if he ever listens to anything I ever do, I want him to know the profound effect this had on me. And so now I want to fast forward. The trial ended the end of September 16. And I'm now at this point just really spiraling downward. Fast forward to a week after Thanksgiving the same year, 2016. My best friend. I'm on duty as a patrol sergeant. I hear a call come out of a suicide. And I didn't put it together immediately, but my partner said that's John's address. And John turns out as my best friend. He's a Vietnam veteran, former military police, also a 35-year reserve officer with my department. He was my partner for many years when I was an officer, and we used to hunt together and work patrol together. He tried to kill himself. And thank God I made it to the hospital just as they brought him in in the ambulance. He was covered in blood. He had slit both wrists, stabbed himself in the torso multiple times, OD'd on five or six prescription medications. And I remember all I could think was he's going to die. He's not going to make it. And I had this brief moment with him before they rushed him to emergency surgery. And I looked him in the eye and I told him, John, you're going to, you're going to make it. You're going to pull through this. And I honestly didn't think he was, but thank God he's alive today. But he saved my life. My best friend, John, saved my life. Because a month after that, I finally got the courage to ask for help. And now you're helping others. And I don't want to, um, there's so much of the story. And I know you're writing a book. I know that. And I can't wait to read this book. Um, but you're helping so many others. Talk about this new journey. You're, if you will, reinventing yourself. Talk about what you're doing now, helping people. So I have to tell you how it all started. And uh, my friend, Please. Danny Bird, he's a former San Jose or Santa Clara police officer. I didn't know him personally, but he found me on LinkedIn. And he reached out to me a couple years ago, and he runs a podcast, and he asked me to do an interview. And I I literally blew him off for like a year. I'm like, I don't want to do it. It's not anything I ever thought about. Like, this is all private. I don't want to share it. And he kept pestering me and hounding me. Thank God he did because he actually drove two and a half hours to me. He set up a camera in the back of a Mimi's Cafe, I remember. And I thought we were going to sit down, have some breakfast, get to know each other. He's like, look, I'm in a hurry. I've got the camera set up. I need to be out here in an hour, so we're just going to get to it. And so literally we just started talking and he video recorded and he ended up sharing it. And literally once he did that, there was this huge weight and burden that came off my shoulders, knowing that the good, the bad, the ugly of my story, much of it are mistakes that I made in waiting too long to ask for help. But once I was out there, there was no more hiding. There was no more pretending that this stuff didn't happen. But the profound thing that happened was people started reaching out to me from literally all over the world because they listened to that interview. They watched it, and they talked about how what I said resonated with them, how they experienced the same thoughts and the same feelings. And that's what started me on this journey where I'm at now, which is now I go and I speak to military and law enforcement agencies across the country. I do podcast interviews all over the world. And that's where I found my mission and my purpose is just, I'm not unique and I'm not special. 
nothing I went through is special. But the fact is that what I went through is what so many other of our brothers and sisters, not just police officers, but firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, military members, they're all going through the same thing. And they need to see that they're not unusual. They're not alone. Nothing is wrong with them. What their experience is normal. It's a normal reaction to repeated trauma that we're exposed to with years and years of this work that we do, and it takes a toll. And I want to show people that there is help, there is hope. If there's someone listening now uh, to Bad Push, and again, thank you so much for joining and telling this very difficult story to talk about. Uh, and I've heard much of it from various podcasts, and I just applaud you for your telling this difficult story. And some of it I had not known, you know, the just oh so sad so tragic um but if there's someone out there listening uh wants to have you lecture uh, wants to know more how can they get a hold of you my friend uh there's a couple ways the best way is on linkedin um i post things on there every single day about officer wellness or suicide prevention i also run a facebook page called first responders first again first responders first and i have an instagram page with the same name. So, you know, send me a message on either platform and I'd be happy to connect with you and we can talk further about that. Uh, I love it. And I follow you. Uh, <laughs> I think I have a good following. You have almost 40,000 uh, contacts on LinkedIn alone uh, because your message is so inspiring. Like my dear friend, Jason, uh, in fact, today you posted if we take the generally accepted definition of bravery as a quality which knows no fear, I have never been a brave man. All men are frightened. The more intelligent they are, the more they are frightened. And that was from who, my friend? General Patton. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> God, well done. Well done. Uh, Jason, your thoughts, my friend. I just want to say thank you, Michael. That, uh, that really helps me in uh, my own journey, my own career as a speaker, wanting to touch other people. I think it's a message that needs to be heard. And all I really think about is, uh, you know, there's nothing, nothing in this world stronger than someone who has been torn down, lost almost everything, and then rebuilt themselves. And uh, not to sound condescending, but I'm incredibly proud of you. I'm incredibly proud that I wore the same uniform that you did. And I hope that you continue to leave each and every day better than you found it, pal, because you are you're doing something really special. And uh, you are unique. You don't want to uh, acknowledge that that's okay. But uh, uh, you are and I appreciate what you're doing. I just followed you on Instagram. So there you go. Yeah, I, I <laughs> concur completely, Jason. And before we let you go, Michael, uh, you had our producer, Rock and Robin, who's a legend here in the valley, uh, in tears. In yes. Yeah, your story is so inspiring because of the difficulties you've had to go through and people just don't get it how much first responders deal with on a daily basis and just the fact that you were doing something to protect other people. You know, listening to you tell the story, it reminded me of what happened to our commander here in Phoenix and unfortunately he was killed protecting two of his female officers that entered the same type of situation that you did and... Um, 
you know, I, all I can tell you is thank you for sharing your story and never let anyone take that voice away from you because it's too important for you to continue to share and to help others. Thank you. Yeah, again, we all thank you. And uh, please come back and join us on Badge Boys. Um, I know you have a book in, in process. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as we wrap up? I'd love to, yeah. It's, um, it's about 80% done, and it's called Relentless Courage. Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And I'm writing this book with Dr. Shauna Springer, also known as Doc Springer. She's a psychologist who has worked with combat veterans and first responders for most her career. And Doc Springer is making this a reality. I owe this whole project to her. She's an amazing, amazing person who's devoted to helping our warriors, both our first responders and our military warriors. And this book is going to be a game changer. It literally, I'm going to go all the way back to my childhood into present day, and I'm going to talk about everything in, in detail and a lot of administrative betrayal, which we didn't even touch on, which is a huge part Absolutely. of what our warriors go through when they're dealing with PTSI. And the structure of the book is each chapter is going to be in my voice talking about my story, but the end of each chapter Dr. Springer is going to have a complete separate section where she is going to explain everything in detail so that anybody, you know, whether you're a family member, first responder, or a loved one, or just anybody on the street, you're going to be able to understand why and how these things affect us in the ways that they do. And I literally know that this book is going to help save lives. I have no doubt. I love it. One more time, that title, because people will be listening to this podcast and eternity. So uh, it'll be available, obviously, at that time. So one more time, that title. It's called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. I love it. And please consider joining us on Badge Boys when you uh, roll that, that incredible book out. I can't wait to read it, my friend. Absolutely. And I'll be putting updates both on LinkedIn and that First Responders First page as the book progresses and we'll definitely have an announcement once it goes live. Love it. Love it. Michael, safe, sir. Michael Sagru, thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests and true blue humor coming up on batch boys. We'll be back right after this. I'm Pete James, a retired law enforcement officer who has a passion for the safety and security of those in the profession. OfficerPrivacy.com offers a full range of privacy services that removes your personal information from the internet so you and your family can feel safe and secure in your home. OfficerPrivacy.com will keep you safe. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Uh, wow, Darren, I'm, uh, I'm never speechless and I sort of am right now uh michael's story his passion the conviction in his voice uh it's humbling to say how proud of him i am and how much i appreciate his raw vulnerability because i know with that he's gone through a lot of pain and i don't want to discount that but that story he was right in one aspect. It's not unique in the sense of a lot of law enforcement officers go through similar trauma like that. And to hear his story, 
I think it's going to save a lot of lives. So we need to to do our best to help him get that message out there. So thank you very much for bringing him on. And this is a difficult transition, but I'll make uh, it easy for you. I'll make well, it easy I'd for say, you. Thankfully, Robin, you're going to play the music that will no, snap us no. right back into Before. my childhood, and we will turn it over to Darren uh, for this week. Although nothing, I don't care what you say this week, is going to touch the blue ducklings from last week so give it a shot <laughs> okay before we do that though we do have to wish our badge boy brother darren a happy birthday Aww. oh See, my goodness there's the transition for you makes it a little my easier favorite co-host uh don't it doesn't matter if you're my only co-host, you're my favorite co-host. <laughs> you are today is your birthday happy birthday my friend well thank you it was a birthday gift listening to uh michael Seguru. how about that for a segue uh because when he talked about the um the effect it had on him when he came home i was there i literally was instantly that if you want to call it the um you know the 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 spark you know that that trigger effect if you want to call it um i remember vividly coming home from my shooting where i killed a man and going into he went to his dark place literally physically and literally i went to a little jacuzzi i had i didn't want to be around anyone and i just cried in a jacuzzi i felt so horrible that i had killed someone and again, by no choice of my own, it was someone who was shooting at me at the time. But th- that feeling of having taken a life, and, and like he said, he was so spot on when he talked about it was somebody's child. And I had the same horror where I, I, I too, had to interact with uh, the person who I killed, parents. And it's gut-wrenching. And it, you, it, the this uniqueness, and I will correct him in a sense. I think he is unique and special in the sense that, for him to have to go through a horrific, wrongful death trial when he did everything right, just because that's the process, and then and not have qualified immunity because they wanted to screw him over, and have the and we didn't even go into this how his own department screwed him over because they thought it was a liability. They wanted to kind of distance. All these bad things kept piling, but then on top of all that. To have a identical twin brother sitting and staring at you, I came and get over that. So in that yeah, sense, that was- it, it was literally um, a very unique, perfect storm against him. And the timing, you know, uh, 2016 when BOM was really coming to their reins and making people hate officers. A, a horrible time. Uh, truly, truly a loony time in our history. And hopefully we'll look back and history will judge them accordingly. And now, the loony laws. And uh, I tell you, uh, <laughs> talk about loony times. There's no better time than now to talk about there are truly some loony laws out there. They may, and I say may, you know, with a huge emphasis, they may have made sense when they were written. But today, they are just questionable or just plain loony. They're in every state. And here's the next set of loony laws. I'm sorry. I let it go extra long that time. I love that tune. <laughs> we did. We did. Okay. Our first set of uh, loony laws uh, is from the state of Taxitusets. Um, uh, having lived there, I can say that. I was taxed in so many different ways in Massachusetts. Uh, candy in Massachusetts. C- candy may not contain more than 1% of alcohol. 
Um, so apparently detox daycares across the country are rejoicing. Uh, I don't know. Is Willy Wonka on the wagon? Why is there a law about alcohol and candy? Is I, I've never heard of candy having alcohol. I didn't know candy. Well, they make them now, the little liquor bottles that you get with uh, their chocolate and there's liquor inside. But, I, I, but may, that didn't is that, exist. Is that what that is? Okay, maybe it that's what this... didn't exist years ago, though. I don't know. It just seems weird. It seems like almost like the whole, you know, the marijuana gummy bears or something, you know, for, for drunks <laughs> that really... Quit giving away all my secrets of how I get through my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are, there are people spiking their uh, their uh, Hershey uh, candy. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, next uh, loony law is from Michigan. No, <laughs> Michigan, no man may seduce or corrupt an unmarried girl or else risk five years in prison. But, and this is me, but married women are free game. Seduce, corrupt away. Absolutely. Uh, can you picture some poor, horny young man who's going to prison when they ask him what he's in for? Because I said to a girl, how you doing? You got to test drive yeah. the merchandise before you marry it. Come on. Oh, no. That's common you sense. If you can't seduce somebody <laughs> who's single, how are you ever going to get them to fall in love? That That's my point. You're allowed to seduce and corrupt married women. So you, everyone has to go after the married women in Michigan. Wow. <laughs> yes. You cannot seduce oh my God, or corrupt. Dude. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to another M state, Minnesota. Uh, in Minnesota, airplanes may not land in city parks. I did not know that. <laughs> well, what happens if they crash? Does that make a difference? Yes, yeah, I'm only guessing, but apparently maybe a Minnesota Homeless Park Community Association signed a petition prohibiting it because the, all the landing planes were ruining their tents in the city or city oh. park. I can, I can only, I can't imagine how this law became Ow. real. I mean, were pilots joking about maybe wanting to land on city parks and someone said, hey, let's make it against the law. Well, maybe instead no. of the Mile High Club, they wanted the Mile Low Club. That is, what if your plane like stalls out and you're lucky enough to survive by landing it in a park because you can't get to runaway? What are the, then they're going to arrest you for doing that? That is the uh, again. It makes that, no sense. That's not even funny. That's just loony, uh, stupid, dumb, dumb. Yeah, dumb. yeah it's it's dumb. truly definition of loony. Uh, Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> this this takes loony to a whole nother level. Uh, if one parent has two illegitimate children. That parent will go to jail for at least one month. Uh, it's badly written. <laughs> I'm thinking it was maybe written by a pilgrim in the 1600s. But uh, uh, the good news is that uh, now these illegitimate uh, breeders can attend jailhouse classes on the right way to put on a condom, I guess. Oh, I, I, oh, I know. I know. I went there. <laughs> Dan, you, you realize that that was a federal law. There would not be a National Basketball Association. <laughs> Oh, I think he just doubled down. Oh my God! Okay, that, listen, that's the truth. It's it's insane. I mean, it's such a. a I, I, only thing I can think of is the sixteen hundred pilgrim saying, you know, you know, Brandon the witch, you know, send him to jail. <laughs> and the word illegitimate. I mean, in the work woke world, we can't even see that word. So word. wait a minute, do they not go after the men back then both, for both making parent, the woman illegitimate? Parent, Babies? period. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Parent. Yeah, both wow. go. Yeah, yeah. And then now the. I hate even using that word illegitimate child. It's such a uh, yeah. That's not fair. It's disgusting. No child is illegitimate. Thank you. They're beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So it it makes me. It's disgusting. But the fact that they would have a law, so the parents go to jail, and now this child is being raised by who? I don't know. Uh, Again, it's a loony law. Hopefully, it's not. They don't enforce it. We can only hope. Uh, But it does take us to uh, Missouri. 
in Missouri, one may not drink in a bar between 2 and 6 a.m. Now, that may seem normal, but you would just close a bar. No, the bars are still open during this time. You just can't drink. So everyone just stares at each other for hours and sobers up long enough to remove the drunk goggles. And so there's very little early morning hookups in Missouri. I guess they oh, don't have to worry about illegitimate children, do they? Yeah, can you <laughs> Yeah, so maybe those two states should get together and, and make one law for for completely... <laughs> this off the rails so fast. I know, I know. Okay, speaking off the rails, let's go to Montana. In Montana, one may not pretend to abuse an animal in the presence of a minor. I repeat, in Montana, one may not pretend to abuse an animal in the presence of a minor. So Disney movies uh, must be completely out outlawed in montana because they're always being pretended to be abused uh so other than hollywood who's pretending to abuse animals and and only thing i can think of is you know jokingly when i like to mount sheep you know jokingly <laughs> I, I guess i could be put in jail in montana you have to actually truly mount the sheep in montana oh, you Lord. can't pretend or at least not have your child with mm-hmm. you well there is the future farmers of america from high school so they are minors right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in Montana, just don't have a minor with you when you want to fake mount a sheep. Um, <laughs> in Nebraska, uh, and we end it with Nebraska. Oh, do we ever. Persons with an STD may not marry. Again, in Nebraska, a person with an STD may not marry. So by all means, all you dripping dicks out there in Nebraska, feel free to screw, screw multiple strangers night after night and thread your love lesions from bar to bar you just can't marry. Uh, yeah, and that is our loony laws. And it's all yours, my friend. <laughs> you should have heard Robin laughing. It was all oh my Yeah, I could hear that she kind of either fell out of her chair or left the studio. For no, a it's, it's called moving over to my board to run the music. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, that, those, this, that's an incredible segment. I just shake my head. I don't even know what to say. I thought the stupid suspect segment we first started was good, but these loose laws are. Uh, again, you're not going to top the duckling story from last week, uh, the blue ducklings in Kentucky. So, um, well, this week, Darren, I want to close out, and this is a both heroic and inspirational, uh, just kind of covering all law enforcement. No needs, no names need to be attached. Uh, it does come out of the city of Alpharetta, but this is exactly how things truly are out there it's not the crazy you know bernie sanders and the aocs of the world who think cops are just hunting people and killing people and anything else that you might hear that cnn tells uh, i think that that they have like i don't know 11 viewers a day so i mean their their popularity is waning which is hilarious but this story really kind of covers the simplicity and the power of law enforcement every day. And again, Alpharetta, and this is from a sergeant who's been doing the job for about 25 years. And last week, some members of his shift were called to a grocery store about a gentleman who had been criminally trespassed. All the officers, white, and the suspect at the time, black. 
usually wouldn't have to mention that, but in today's world with all these stupid politicians and activists and media, we do have to mention that. So the officers arrived, they got the suspect, and I use that term loosely because turns out he's not. They gave him a chance to explain his side of the story. And he was simply at the grocery store to buy some groceries. So the officers, not only did they not trespass him, they took him back in, helped him do his grocery shopping, and then one of the officers stuck his own credit card into the machine and paid for $100 worth of his groceries. Made that gentleman his day a little better, made him a lot better, helped him out with getting some food. Officers are not out there hunting and killing people. What we heard from Michael, it is devastating when you do have to take somebody's life. It will change you forever. And you have to be careful and you have to not be afraid to ask for help. But of the millions, tens and tens of millions of calls every day, these are the type of calls that officers go on and what is actually happening out there. And I hope that as the pendulum starts to swing, and I can already feel it swinging uh, back to the the right direction with how crime is out of control. People want more officers and they want to be safe and they want to be prosperous, which is all of our God-given right. So the stories like that always inspire me and the heroes are just all the officers across the country who are doing their job the right way with honor and integrity. Thank you all very much, Darren. Happy, happy birthday. Thank you for the incredible guests we had today and we will see you all next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.